classes in session. Good morning and welcome to Unlearn 16 classes in session. Now today, guys, I have to admit I'm a little nervous. I don't get nervous around a lot of people, but I'm a, I'm a li- I, I'm sweating a little bit. This is the uh, Honorable Tony Clement. Um, he was an MP, an MPP in his cabinet underneath Mike Harris and Ernie Eves, and then as an MP again in his cabinet underneath Stephen Harper for how long? What, what, what's the span of your career there in politics? Uh, federally, it was about, it was almost 10 years. And I, then, well, actually, it was, it was almost 14 years because I spent four years in opposition. Yeah. And then spent four years in Right, right, right. Um, and oof, uh, what, I, I, I'm a little taken aback because this is a lot of time in politics, a lot of experience, and I'm incredibly excited to have yeah, this discussion. Yeah, it was discussion. a total of 25 years. I, I should have mentioned that. When you add the provincial and the federal, it was, it was a total of 25 25 years. So what I really want to get at today, and we're going to talk about where uh, Mr. Clement is now and what he's doing now. That's pretty exciting. And then we're going to jump right in. And my listeners know where I stand politically. And uh, Mr. Clement and I might stand on some opposite sides of the boat in some capacity, but I want to be able to have a discussion about that. I want to be able to talk about the political system as it stands now, both here and in the United States, and get your perspective on that. Um, first of all, let's talk about where you are right now. So you stepped out of politics, you decided not to run again and stepped out as of 2019. So what have you been up to now? Yeah, no, thank, thanks for asking that question, Joanna. I, I'm, um, I do a, I, I take a portfolio approach to my life, so I don't do just one thing. I try to keep busy with a number of things. So my number one thing is, um, I'm a startup entrepreneur. So I'm involved in a half a dozen startups uh, as an advisor and as a shareholder uh, in the uh, tech space and in the healthcare space, including psilocybin, by the way. I've got a couple of companies I'm involved in the, in the psilocybin space. And uh, I also do a little bit of consulting, not too much, but a little bit. And uh, I also started uh, with a liberal uh former cabinet minister, a friend of mine, Sandra Pupatello, we started something called Reshoring Canada, which Mm -hmm. is about uh, reassessing and changing our supply chains to uh, ensure we have greater uh, national security, greater health security, greater job security. And uh, then I've got my media stuff that I do. So I've got a, a monthly radio show on a local radio station here in Muskoka, uh, which is basically I'm a DJ, and uh, then I've got a podcast called And Another Thing Podcast that I do with a, a friend of mine named Jody Jenkins, so we do that once a week. We've done 108 episodes of that, and uh, then uh, I, I have this uh, television show on this um, new news network, television network that's on Bell, Rogers, and TELUS. Uh, Rogers 107, Bell 506, and Telus 842. Called the 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 uh, the network is called the News Forum, and I have right. a business and economics news and views show called Boom and Bust that I've done almost 200 episodes for. Yeah, it's it's very economically driven. There's a couple of where I'm like, okay, I'm going to take a minute. I'm just going to step away. I'm going to look up some terminology. And then I'm going to come back to the episode and see if I can throw down in it. 
Um, so yeah, they wanted me to do a show when they were starting up this network. And I said, look, I'm, I, I am not doing a political show. Like I'm not doing what happened in question period this week. I I had no interest in that. I wanted to sort of push my boundaries a little bit. So they allowed me to do a a business and economics show. So I've had, I've had politicians, I've had ex-politicians, I've had finance ministers, but I've also had economists. I've had startup entrepreneurs, tech entrepreneurs, uh, Bitcoin entrepreneurs, you you name it. So it really is a wide ranging show that way. Absolutely, absolutely, and it and it's it is incredibly diverse and and actually quite entertaining. I'm not going to lie, economics isn't my forte, um, but it outside of looking up some. I mean, I'm not going to pretend to understand Bitcoin. I'm just going to put that aside and just move on with my life. I think it's sometimes you got to take the wins and the losses where they are, and Bitcoin is a loss. Uh, I'm now working on what the heck an NFT is, so uh, I'll stay there for a while. But what I would really like, don't get me wrong, I'm a little bit dying to go back to, you know, 1996 under Mike Harris and say, what was going on there or whatever. But I don't think that's going to be as useful today because I think we have a real problem in politics today that, that we need to find a way around. So would you consider, let's sort of, decide where you stand, would you still consider you're a member of the Progressive Conservative Party? Do you consider yourself a conservative through and through? And what does that yeah, mean to I, you? Yeah. And uh, it's it's my tribe. Uh, so I'm kind of with them through thick and thin. And usually mm-hmm. there's more thin than thick there's when you're dealing with the conservatism <laughs> in Canada. Uh, but uh, no, it, it's it's I've been involved in uh, the conservative movement since I was 15 years old. Mm. You know, 1975, 1976. So it's a long time. And um, so that, that, you know, that's no, I shouldn't say um, I'm a, uh, I'm a, I'm a conservative because I'm a conservative. I, I should say, I mean, I am a movement conservative. By that, I mean, I do adhere to certain principles and concepts that I believe are, are truly conservative, but it doesn't mean that I agree with, you know, modern conservatism 100% of the time. Uh, but Absolutely. but modern conservatism, the thing about conservatism is it's because it's based on realism, uh, it does change. Uh, now, not everybody in conservative politics changes and uh, they, they right. <clears throat> sometimes are too rigid in their ideology. But I, I think if you look at, you know, conservatism over the last 300 years, uh, you know, in British politics and U.S. politics right. and Canadian politics, uh, it does change. Um, so how do I define myself? Well, I, I, I define myself as a lover of freedom. I, I believe that people, when they have their own choices in life, uh, and they do have responsibilities to their fellow human beings, don't get me wrong, but generally, I want control over my life. And that's, right. that, I think, is a very conservative concept. Some would call it libertarian. Uh, maybe that's a branch of conservatism in certain mm-hmm. instances. I, right. I I don't go as far as libertarians because I believe that we have some collective responsibilities to our fellow human beings. But generally, I want not I want to be left alone. I don't like government bossing me around too much. So that's mm-hmm. part of it. I'm also a market conservative. So I believe that uh, millions upon millions of individuals making millions upon millions of economic choices in the free market is the best way to construct an economy. Um, so 
there is necessarily state control over some things, and there are certain ways that the market um, uh, fails, uh, Mm -hmm. creating monopolies and oligopolies, as an example. Uh, So there is there is need for for government or state intervention, but generally, again, generally, I would consider myself a market freedom lover. Um, So those are the kind of the the biggest sort of aspects of my conservatism. And I came at it, you know, in my formative years when Pierre Elliott Trudeau was uh, prime minister. And I thought at the time and many others thought at the time he was running a very socialistic economy. As it turns out, uh, he was nothing compared to his son (laughs) that way. But uh, uh, fired already. All right. right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Shots fired. Anyway, but that's that's those were my formative years. And um uh, that's kind of the the general principles that I like to adhere to in my uh, political thoughts. Now, mm-hmm. having said all that, um, you know, and I actually think this is true to it, but uh, I have become unnerved by certain aspects of uh, modern day capitalism, which I think uh, have hurt people. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe this is where, surprisingly, you and I are going to agree. But I, I think uh, the forces of uh, of globalization over the last 40 years, let's say, have left a number of people behind. And mm-hmm. uh, these are marginalized people. They are working class people. Uh, they, they are people who have striven to be part of the economy and can't. Uh, they may be racialized people as well. Uh, And so they have been left behind. And at the same time, because of the workings of the global economy, some people have gotten very, 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 very rich. And uh, I think that overall, while I applaud people who create wealth and who uh, create new things that are valued by a market economy, I think all of that is a good thing. You don't want to have too much difference between uh, people who have nothing and people who have a lot of something. Absolutely. And, uh, so, so that that I think is a problem, and I think that it has caused uh, a, a dysfunctionality in our political system, which has been uh, used perhaps by some. Uh, some call it populism, but populism doesn't. You know, conservative populism. There is there is progressive populism too, by the way, and they both yeah. sort of attack globalization. Interestingly enough, so that's where the two ends of the spectrum meet. But um, having sir, said all yeah. that, uh, I do think that um, this has created, uh, you know, people who are disaffected with the system, and so they they have nothing to lose because the system has given them nothing. And that has created dysfunctionality in our political system and our economic system. So maybe that's a place where you and I agree. I don't know. A hundred percent. I'm going to go back just a little bit because I want to talk about the foundations of conservative conservatism just a little bit more. Um, so, so you spoke about freedom, uh, personal freedom, and I think a lot of people would agree to that. But when you really look up the tenets, let's say, of liberalism, it also talks about personal. It really does sure. talk about personal freedom. Um, At the root of a lot of conservative ideologies too, there is uh, a traditional religious underpinning. I mean, for the most part, there is that underpinning. How do you fall in that capacity? Because I know that 
I want everybody to have all the freedoms in the world to practice what they want. I also know that me as a person, especially in this point, in this day and age, and I don't mean to sound facetious when I say this, I'm getting really tired of the God bless coming from my mm-hmm. politics. I don't want to hear, I don't, I really don't want to know what your faith is, like that person's faith. I don't want it put upon us. I joke all the time. I'm like, listen, if everybody didn't get two weeks off at Christmas and we just like the break, that's also sort of a an example of how there's still this religious underpinning to our country. How do you feel about that? Or do you feel that that's still an underpinning of the conservative faith, uh, under ideology? Yeah. So uh, let me say a, th- a couple things. First, on your on your first point, uh, you know, when you said that this sounds like classical liberalism, the answer is mm-hmm. it is classical liberalism, is. and think yes. things have changed over time. The, the 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 monikers or the terminology has changed, but it, it's basically classical liberalism. Although there is a strain in the 19th century where conservatives did embrace some of those things, but at the same time, they also believed uh, in uh, individual human beings being, you know, uh, being held responsible for helping their fellow man, right? right. So, uh, so that may not have been part of classical liberalism and a part of classical conservatism. And, and I, do, I do believe that we have an obligation to help our fellow citizens. Um, it doesn't have to be through the state. It can be through individual action, but it, it, it is, it is part of my moral fiber that I believe that. Where does that come from? I think it's, I think it's inherent in every human being. It's part of our DNA that we really should help one another. Uh, Mm -hmm. it's also part of my, it's also part of my faith. Uh, I am, I am a practicing Christian and I believe that that's a good thing. Uh, because when you have unfettered capitalism without something like Christianity, things go wrong very quickly. So uh, I, I have no intention or desire to foist my my faith on any other individual. Uh, my faith is is something that is between my my creator and myself, but it yeah. does animate how I feel about things. And is it part of conservatism? It's part of some people's conservatism. If you're a libertarian, it isn't part of your conservatism. It's right, most, right. Mo- the, the classical definition of libertarianism involves atheism as well. Atheism, um, yeah, for sure. So, so I, I, I just, uh, you know, this is where you get into the blending. You know, not, nothing's pure, particularly in Canada. There's no pure liberalism. There's no pure progressivism. There's no pure conservatism. But uh, yeah, it is part of, of my, my faith journey, and it is part uh, of a strain of conservatism. Uh, here's where maybe I differ from what you would call social conservatives, let's say, uh, where I, I do believe I, you know, I personally have an obligation to help other people, but I don't have an, I, it's certainly not part of my ideology to foist those kinds of ideas on to people who don't agree with them. So I wouldn't be changing laws to, uh, you know, to reflect that. Uh, and okay. in fact, my, my journey as a conservative, uh, as a conservative, has moved considerably on social issues. So I'm, you know, very, really? yeah, very pro LGBTQ right now, mm-hmm. as of now, where I wasn't 20 years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, most people in the LGBT community would say, that's a good thing that your, your, your ideas have moved. Uh, mm-hmm. Some condemn me for not having those ideas in the first place. Well, you know, the, the times were different and uh, I can't I can't rewrite 
how I thought about something 25 years ago, but that isn't how I feel about these things now. So I think there's been a movement with me, and, and I think there's also been a movement with conservatism. And, and I, I think when you look at it, you know, if I'm a, a freedom lover, uh, then, then I, I'm not making any, I, I have no right to make any moral judgments on any other person on those kinds of things. So that's I'm how, not, that's yeah, how I land on, on these point. things now. And on that point, I think it's super important to give people the room to grow. We, we, we judge a lot of people about what they did 20, 25 years ago. Me 25 years ago, hun, I would have been against LGBT, which is hilarious but when I was growing up in a suburb of Toronto, I'm right. obviously white. I was upper class. I wasn't out. I was straight presenting. I thought I was straight. And you know what? There was a lot of homophobia and it was common culture. It makes right. it horrible and disgusting then. But I think it's hysterical, whereas we can judge like me sitting where I am right now, I can judge politicians about what they did 25 years ago, but still remember what my friends would say 25 years ago and the culture I lived in and the movies I watched and the words and the vernacular that was used. Sure. I have to, I have to look to that as well. Um, but my, I, I guess my issue or my, my thought is when we're talking about religion now, for example, let's just talk policy a little bit. And I know that we're not in charge of anything or all that. Well, I'd like to be, but um, let's talk about defunding Catholic schools. Where do you stand on that? Like in Ontario, we're one of two provinces that still right. publicly funds Catholic schools. Where would you stand on that in today's day and age? Yeah, I, I just don't think that's the biggest issue right now because, uh, you know, the, the Catholic schools that are funded have to adhere to a certain curriculum. Uh, so I'm, I'm not, you know, it's not, that's not as big a deal to me as, um, how we deal with cultural shifts in our education system. So this, this, this comes out with, uh, you know, a critical race theory, uh, you know, cancel culture, uh, you know, those kinds of things. And, and, uh, uh, particularly on cancel culture, I'm very concerned that we have gone from a place, I, you know, I grew up at a time when liberal leftists were the biggest defenders of free speech, because if they weren't, they would have been canceled in the 60s and 70s, right? Right. So they were the biggest defenders of freedom of speech. And now I, I fear, uh, my observationally, that a lot within the progressive movement, uh, in fact, do not defend free speech, uh, are quite willing and uh, and do cancel people who have positions that are different from their own which uh, I would argue you know in the market in the marketplace of ideas we should have those debates rather than try to deplatform people because they have they they have a different point of view which you find obnoxious you know and uh, I'm I'm kind of very old school 18th century old school on this where Voltaire said famously, I disagree with what you say, but I will defend, I defend to the your, death your right to say it, you know, but yes. we're not in that, we're not in that culture anymore. If you disagree with what I say, you're going to try to cancel me. And, and, and I, and I think that that's kind of imbued in the education system a little bit too. Uh, so that's, that's my biggest fear um, on, on these things rather than, I, I think there's a false 
uh, right now, uh, Catholic school, public school funding, you know, whatever. But how are we teaching our kids to be critical, to be um, uh, to to uh, take media uh, uh, critically and seriously? Don't believe everything you hear or say, even from your own teachers. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of critical that's, minds that's- that I want in our society. Now, just as a as a point, do you think though maybe maybe that changing the school system is a even if you think that a Catholic school isn't uh, preaching a very particular lifestyle, which I still think I might disagree with you there. I've not too long ago know people that don't get hired at Catholic schools or have got fired in this district for being gay, working at a Catholic school. And, and those things still run. So do you think that maybe symbolically at the very least, if we are going to profess that our government is not supporting any one religion, do you think at this point in our society, maybe that's a step in the right direction? Maybe that's a show of good faith for using a, a, a poor choice of words there, a show of yeah, good yeah, yeah. faith. No to change this culture you're talking about. Yeah, no, and and there, uh, obviously, if you're in a Catholic school system, there will be classes uh, that will talk about your faith, uh, Mm -hmm. which will not be appropriate for everybody in that system because you'll have non-Catholics in the system, uh, Muslims, for instance, or Hindus, Mm -hmm. who just happen to have chosen a Catholic school. Maybe their parents want a bit more rigor in their kids' education, and they think they're going to get it at a Catholic school. They're prettier. Whatever. In Ontario, Catholic schools are very well-funded. The, it seems as though their, their school, it, it, they're newer, they have more access to technology overall right. than the public schools in the vicinity, right? Yeah, no, it could could be, could be. Uh, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. I I, uh, I guess I'm, I'm putting my politician's hat on and thinking <laughs> which 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 hill do you want to fight on right absolutely like you're, you're, when, when you're yeah. when you're elected you have a certain amount of rocket sauce that you were elected yep. with so how do i want to spend my rocket sauce to uh to make change in uh, the most areas before they get tired of me and kick me out Mm-hmm. Right? That's what every politician is is or should be thinking. So, and that's what I, to me, I want to come back to that because I think that's yeah, super yeah, yeah. important. Like, yeah, yeah, but but to me, so taking on that, uh, which might have there'll be court challenges, constitutional challenges, yada yada yes, yada. Absolutely. I'd yeah. rather spend my rocket sauce on something else. That that's just me. Right. But again, like you know, we're not in that. I am talking more ideologically, theoretically, in the sense that changing that maybe changes the discourse, maybe changes that critical thinking because the the critical thinking that goes on in schools or that we want to encourage in schools has to go against those foundational areas of power in which, let's be honest, the Catholic school system and the and religion in our country has had such a hold on it for so long. And then, and in my opinion, it rolls into cancel culture. And I really want to talk about that with you as well. Um, because this idea of cancel culture and what people are allowed or not allowed to say and how it plays out, I see it more as a reflection on capitalism 
than I really do in the sense that the people have, the people have power. Yeah, because we have power about what we're going to buy. I'll give you an example. Dr. Seuss, did you hear about the whole thing with Dr. Seuss? They took off a couple of his books or yeah. the, the, right? They, it was like three books, two of them I've never heard of before anyways, but they took two books off the shelf because they had very sort of racialized pictures and, and, and things in them. And everybody lost their minds. This is cancel culture. Well, first of all, Dr. Seuss did it. Nobody, nobody was even looking at those books. Dr. Seuss did it. We want to know why Doc, Dr. Seuss wasn't going to cancel Cat in the Hat. They canceled three books that weren't making them any money anymore. And in my opinion, it was a brilliant move to say, we're going to be self-reflective on things that aren't okay anymore. We're going to take these off the market. But they're going to take three books off the market no one's bought in the last 20 years. And right. now we we have this vision, right? And I still think that's true of cancel culture. Like people have done horrible, horrible things. They haven't got canceled. Why? Because they're still making money for their, you know, whether they're a musician or an actor or an athlete, it doesn't seem to matter as long as they're bringing in the money. They stop bringing in the money. And then look, the cancel culture works really well for that particular institution, yeah, I mean, you, think it, you, you have a point. It's it's market driven, is what your point is, and and that that's yeah. a fair point. Uh, I'll give exactly. you one other example I heard of the other day, which is that the Rolling Stones uh, do not have in their set list anymore brown sugar. Okay, so mm-hmm. which is about you know a a a a, uh, a slaver a slave an enslaved person's daughter or granddaughter mm-hmm. or something. Uh, right. Lots of imagery of slavery and slave masters and, and stuff like that. So they just, you know, the 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 person that inspired the song, the black woman who inspired the song is pissed off that it's no longer part of their set list. So right. she wasn't offended that it was <laughs> it was a song about her. But uh, but the I can see, you know, Mick Jagger's point of view, which is, you know, I don't want to go through the, the, sh- the bullshit. Right. Mm-hmm. So his point of view is. Why go through all of this? We've got 930 other songs we can do. But of course, Brown Sugar was a huge hit in 1971 or whatever it was. So, you know, that's uh, part of me mourns the fact that that uh, the Rolling Stones will no longer perform Brown Sugar. Uh, but part of me also says that that's a choice. I mean, you know, uh, I can mm. listen to Brown Sugar anytime I want uh, on Spotify or wherever. Uh, so, you know, is this really a big deal? I think it, I think what, what is disconcerting to people of a certain age, and that includes me, uh, is that, um, how disposable, how disposable, you know, older things are to this new generation. Like there's, uh, to that, to, to people like me, You've got to learn from history. You've got to understand history, but you've also got to respect it was part of our history. And this goes mm-hmm. to the statues and, uh, and the oh, other I'd things. Love to talk about that. Yes. Yeah, you know. So, so uh, I, you know, that's the thing that is disconcerting. That you know, people, you know, forty and under are just lopping off vast segments of uh, culture tradition. Now you could say it was racist or it was colonialist, but you know I wasn't born in this country. Uh, you know I don't feel that I was part of a colonial. Now you could say, well, you benefited from it. Well, you know I had a tough life, and a lot of a lot of white men had a tough life. 
So it, we're, we're into that discussion now, but, but, um, uh, so that I think is what is driving the reaction to that is that the change is happening very quickly. Uh, and it seems to be that the Dr. Seuss thing became news because of how nonsensical it, it sounded be- before you delved into it the way you, that you just delved into it. It's a couple of books. Mm-hmm. Nobody really cares. But the idea of taking books off the shelves, I find very disconcerting. Uh, you know, they there's very few books. You couldn't find them. I know. I, swear I know, but it's they just, were on a shelf at Indigo. That's how it. That's how it evokes, right? That's how it evokes yes. that. Uh, There's the problem, know, it, and I think that's it's, what, it's like the Mister Mister Potato Head controversy. Potato Head controversy. Same thing. I love it. How dare you it. attack Mister Potato Head? You know. Like, and this is the thing. Everything seems to be getting weaponized, right? right. Everything. Seems to be getting weaponized by the left and the right in different ways. And we can't have a rational discussion. Like I went and looked, as soon as I heard about this Dr. Seuss thing, I'm like, crap, I'm going to go, because I have them all from when I was a kid. I'm going to go look, but I don't have them all. But ironically, I had the worst. I have no oh, idea. Really? I had one of the, if I ran the zoo is the worst out of them all. Cause the other ones were very more subtle anyway. And I looked at the, if I ran the zoo and I went, oh, and then I took it into my school I have it. I mean, I'm a, I've been a teacher 20 years. I took it into my school and I talked about it in every single class. And the kid said, and this is a great conversation. The kid said, Joanna, why don't you throw out that book? I said, oh, I'm not throwing out this book. Here's why I'm not throwing out the book. I'm not throwing it out because we the only way we can still identify and accept and embrace what we did, what we allowed to happen when I was in high school, the words I was allowed to use is by talking about it, right. I'll be damned if you have to make money anymore. I wouldn't buy the book. I right. don't think, th- and that's the difference. I, I, I often question tradition and obviously I sit where I sit. Um, and I often quest- question tradition and I, and I say, does it serve us now? Is it legitimate now? And if it's legitimate now, then I respect it. If it doesn't serve us now, then we then tradition, and I can use it even in really funny ways at Christmas time, then tradition shouldn't be continuously practiced. We need to be critical, just as critical of that as we are of things going on today. You know, you have a everybody, you have a Christmas party you don't want to go to, you hate it. You just hate it, but it's tradition. You know what? I think we need to move past things that are problematic, that are divisive, that are, um, you know, all of those things. And we really need to gauge them. We don't just get to keep them because they have the word traditional in front of it. Yeah, no, and I guess I, and I I don't mind individuals making that choice. Uh, So, Mm -hmm. you know, if if you have a problem with a tradition, that's fine. That's your choice, Uh, you know. It's my it's my choice if I want to buy Mr. Potato Head, uh, even though it is gender specific, uh, I I think I should have the right to buy Mr. Potato Head, and maybe I'll have a discussion with my my grandkids about Mr. Potato Head doesn't mean that you're you're anti you're you're misogynistic, so so you know you know I know I know it's a ridiculous example, but that's uh, you know but that's, it's still a good one because people I mean, got really upset. Yeah, and so right. I. I and I look these debates cultural cultural debates are not new. This is not something unheard of before. And I'll give you another example of this 
that I use quite a bit, uh, which is uh, this is a, the American context now where people say this is the most divided time in American history. Yeah. Right. That's bullshit. So. Yeah. It's historically untrue. <laughs> they had a civil war. 750,000 <laughs> Americans died in the civil yeah. war. Surely that was the most divided time in American history. This, the, the Vietnam War, there were people being shot by National Guardsmen on campus. There was, uh, they, they lit up Washington, D.C., a mile from the Capitol. Washington, D.C. was in flames. So don't tell me this is the most divided time in America. It's just part of a cycle. And mm-hmm. when you're old like me, you see the cycles more than people who are right in it. And, oh, my gosh, there are genu- Generation Zetters who are throwing Molotov cocktails. Well, what do you think happened in the 60s, man? <laughs> the right. same thing happened with the boomers. Uh, you know, Absolutely. so, so uh, you know, we go in cycles and uh, there's a push me, pull you part of cultural debate, which I think is, is valid and necessary. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's. I guess my point, and I'm, I'm bringing it to an extreme right now. My point is, please, for goodness sakes, don't throw out every single tradition. There's a reason why tradition is important in society. It helps people understand wh- where they are and where they came from. How they progressed is, is you know, part of the, the, the tradition in a democratic society as well. So don't, don't throw it all out. Understand nope. it better. Say, you know, we used to do this, but we don't do it anymore. And here's why we don't do it anymore. That's all valid. That's discussion. That's a hundred percent valid, right? Yeah. Yeah. We need to get at the, I still say we need to get at the roots of that. And we, and by you talking about Mr. Potato Head and whether you have the right to choose uh, to buy it or not buy it. Look, the Mattel company, I think it's Mattel. If I miss. Yeah, it's Mattel. Yeah. Um, they're the ones that decided that they decided that not to be woke culture. And first of all, I hate people weaponizing that term. They decided it because they want to make more money. They want to make themselves relevant again. And this is the way that they're doing it. They're not doing it because people are protesting outside of Toys R Us. That never happened. Um, But they're doing it because this is the shift that we're seeing, right? We are seeing this shift and it's incredibly, speaking about going against tradition, the Mr. Mr. Potato Head is a great example. I think of one of, oops, one of the biggest traditions or one of the biggest sort of functional societal frameworks we have, which is the distinction between men and women, masculine and feminine. This is at the root of who we are in a lot of ways. And, and, I think everybody deals with it on a different level. The first thing you do when you see a baby, for the most part, oh my God, they're so beautiful. Is it a boy or a girl? First thing we ask, why? Because we have been so incredibly trained to pick up that baby differently, to talk to that baby differently, to use different words to describe that baby. And this is at the root. Like I still do it. Like, look at me. Like I'm obviously not fitting in a mold over here, but that is still how we were trained. And I think to get around that training, it has to get bumpy and messy. And, and there has to be people yelling and talking about Mr. Potato Head as a, as this pinnacle of an example to really start to acknowledge or look at that kind of societal construction. Right. uh, You know, is the end of that construction, we de-gender size a hundred percent of society. My, my opinion, I hate 
Well, and, and let's just, dif- for, for argument's sake, let's just change the difference between sex and gender, right? So sex is what you're born with, gender, uh, you know, the characteristics that you attribute. Right. I personally believe, I know it's very Hindu, that all gender is a delusion. I personally believe that, that the roles, I think you and I, for example, would both have, both hold on to very, some masculine, some feminine sure. traits. In different it's, it's, ways. It's all part of a, yeah, it's all part of a, uh, a, a spectrum. spectrum. There we go. So if it's all part of a spectrum, um, we haven't been teaching that much, right? Because it, again, babies who are born, we're starting to see the change, right? Babies who are born, you get certain kinds of names, you get certain kinds of clothes, you get certain kinds of toys, you get certain kinds of adjectives and socialization to bring you up. And then what we do is we say, oh, but look at how different boys and girls are. <sighs> How do you take the socialization out of that? I mean, unless we're going to experiment with twins somewhere and keep them separate from society, right. how do you take socialization out of the clothes we wear, out of the well, makeup? I think that there's, there, there are studies that there, there, there. Look, I there are studies that show that men's brains and women's brains are different. Uh, generally, uh, you know, 100%. well, ninety nine percent anyway, uh, and yep. uh, and so you know, this is not all nurture. There is some nature here. Uh, that we have to acknowledge, uh, you know, we, we, and you can't erase nature in 20 years after uh, Homo sapiens have been around for 500,000 years. So I guess I make that point. But, uh, you know, look, yeah, that no, doesn't so, change. Like I'm, I'm looking at the guitars on your back wall and I'm thinking to myself, how many men are guitarists and how many women aren't? Look, there's nothing about our physical, our, our, our mental makeup, our genes, our whatever. That means men are inherently better at guitar than women. You know, that it just seems, you know, those are the outputs. If you're talking about, because the studies I've seen are that, for example, well, women. There's a lot of good women guitarists, my friend. I'll, I'll but I mean, that 100%, but I'm just saying on the whole, <laughs> why aren't we seeing that, right? It's not me, but on the whole, why aren't we seeing that? Whereas yeah. the studies I know that have been done will talk about things like guys' brains work a lot better in some ways of being very narrowly focused and target driven, whereas women's brains tend to be more wide ranging and, and can multitask better. Right. Look, if that's true, and we're going to assume the science is true, then the jobs we're doing that men have taken over and women have been relegated make no sense whatsoever due to our biology. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. The science I mean, doesn't and there, there is reality. some cultural, yeah, I mean, look, there is some cultural history behind women's jobs and men's jobs, which is breaking down and and will continue to do so. Uh, although Absolutely. I don't see a lot of men flocking to become nurses for some reason. No. I don't know why, why that is. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that is? Because uh, nurses make. Just so why why do you not- think that is? Well, nurses make, just so everybody knows who's not in Ontario, because I have a lot of American listeners, nurses in Ontario make a really good living. Like I think at the top of their career, we're talking ninety dollars to $100,000 a year. It is a great job. It is a great job for benefits. It's a great job to take, you have shift work so you can take care of family. My mom was a nurse for 40 years. Um, and And I think it's because there's this inherent driven sexism that goes with gender. So for example, when I've created my list, list of the masculine, my list of the feminine told boys to behave this way, girls to behave this way, they're not equitable lists in our society. 
They're hierarchical, right? The masculine is still considered to be better. It's better to be rational. I mean, given these lists, realizing I don't believe in these lists, but it's better to be rational. It's better to be scientific. You got to be competitive. You got to be this, you got to be that. So when women become doctors and lawyers and politicians, we are stepping up. When men take on more feminized labor um, positions, they're stepping it's down. Stigmatized? Absolutely it is. Yeah, interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. And- by, by the way, interesting, fun point. Um, one of the internal teachings uh, for conservative politicians is to be more emotional rather than always be 100% uh, just reason-based mm-hmm. because sure. you actually you actually are more persuasive to more people when people think you're emotional and passionate about something rather than, well, I've added two plus two and I've gotten four, therefore the answer is this. So right. uh, it, it, politics is, is changing that way. Uh, I, I will, uh, this is a good time for me to talk about something that I, I, I also feel very strongly about, which is the, the phrase toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, look, in my mind, if a man is acting badly, uh, especially towards women, that is not a masculine behavior. That's a, just a shitty behavior. Okay. Like masculinity to me means, uh, being, being strong, but being protective and being respectful and helping your fellow citizens and helping particularly in in this, in this, uh, point women. So mm-hmm. to, to, uh, tribute to masculinity, poor behavior, maybe it's learned behavior, uh, I, th- I think is a disservice. Like I'm, I, I identify as a male. Mm-hmm. I like being a man and I like being masculine. I have mm-hmm. certain traits that I would consider more feminine. Like mm-hmm. I, I like to, I like babies and I like nurturing and I like doing those things. I know this is all, I, you would say, no, 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 that, though, that isn't masculine or feminine. I'm just talking about traditional role models. No, tradition, hundred so, percent. We're talking about traditional yeah. lines of thinking. Right, here, right, yes. right, right. So, so, but I think to be a good man, you should, you know, help raise babies and mm-hmm. you should, uh, help women who are going through emotional crisis all of those things are being a good man and a good human being at the same time. So I, I really worry that that the phrase toxic masculinity is is creating a definition of masculinity which really isn't masculine. It's just another definition of femininity. And and that's what I worry I think, about. I think a lot of people who really do talk intellectually anyways about toxic masculinity aren't will make that very clear distinction. But again, it's interesting because when we talk about something that's toxic, we've talked about, we're talking about something that was originally a good thing or, you know, and, and then has been turned bad, has been gone to its extreme. I don't like any extremities. I don't like any true believers. I always get very nervous when somebody says, I 100% believe in anything. I'm like, mm, I, if you can't question it, you make me uncomfortable because you have to be able to question every single thing at every single turn, including my viewpoints on gender, including I, I love to listen to other people's viewpoints. And I think that's what we're missing. But the idea of toxic masculinity are these still to me, these enforced 
gender roles based on your sex. And you mentioned protection, which I think is an interesting one. The idea of protection, I think, A, can come off as amazing, right? You, somebody, somebody's going to hurt you and I protect you, however I do that. Look, I think that's a very human thing to protect a lot of people. There's a lot of moms who would step in and protect their kids. And we've seen those videos where they lift cars. So we, we have this in us. But I think the protection that's problematic is the control, right? For yeah, okay. example, let me give you an example, right? Um, sexual assault is rampant. Everybody knows that. We can't even dis- we can't debate that. So I have two choices as a, let's say, as a parent or as a teacher. What do I do? I'll use as a teacher. I'm not a parent. Do I control what my young women wear at school or do we have significant consequence when boys or girls, for that matter, step out of line in response to what they're wearing? And I think for a very long time, we've been doing the former. And I think it's about time to do the latter. It's a different kind, right? Rather than holding the victim or the individual who is just trying to live their life the way they want to live it, rather than holding them responsible for not wearing anything too revealing, because it's also very, um, do you you get that at school? Do you get that argument that they're wearing too revealing clothing? Oh, for a long time, for a long time. I've been a teacher for a little while, right? We used to have all those rules. We don't have them anymore because I refuse to enforce them. You know, oh my God, don't wear a shirt off your shoulder. I don't, we don't want to see your bra. Heaven forbid we see your midriff, right? I mean, these were all very, very common and still to this day, very common in my opinion. Um, And I had a student sit me down one time and goes, Joe, like, why, why is it okay? Why is me showing my bra strap such a huge distraction? When in actuality, I should be able to wear whatever I want to wear. And if people can't handle it around me, shouldn't you be talking to them? And she was 16 at the time. And this was probably about maybe seven years ago. And I went, you're 100% right. I will never, ever enforce a dress code ever again, because you're right. That we're, we're putting the onus on the wrong people. And then that amazing art, I don't know if you ever saw this. It was by, her name's gone but it was an artist on the East coast and she put together a visual of clothing of women that had been sexually assaulted or raped, what they were wearing. Right. They were assaulted. And it, and the reason why it was so incredibly powerful is because there were no high heels. There were no mini skirts. There was no, you know, all of this revealing, nobody was wearing a bikini. Nobody, you know, it was sweatsuits and, and jeans and sneakers and a hat. And in that, you got a very real picture of what sexual assault was, which is never about sex. It's only about power anyways. Power. Yeah. 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 And, and But even for me, for a long time, I was the teacher because that protection quality that you were talking about, I had it. Well, I have to protect. Why are you wearing revealing clothing? I have to get at your, your deeper underpinnings, right? I have to get at your psychology there. When in essence, there needs to be that ideological shift to where we're laying the blame or where we're laying the responsibility. And I think, yeah, you know, that's and, and I, I a hundred percent agree with that. And, and, uh, uh, I do, I do, I do. And, uh, you know, we, we've done so much in our society to lift up uh, females, uh, which mm-hmm. is great. Uh, it's fantastic. We have left some boys behind and 100%. they're, they're they're playing. They're they're uh, they're playing Grand Theft Auto, 
and they're mm-hmm. watching porn. Mm-hmm. That's what they do. And they get all their signals oh. from, I'm not, I'm not picking on Grand Theft it. Auto, but so, so <laughs> let's, let's, you, you can that beat to me up is not, you know, that to me is not being a man. Okay. Like, like I would say to any uh, young man who's living his life, gaming and watching porn, you are not being a man right now. You got to step up and I will use the phrase man up, take your responsibilities seriously. This is a bit of Jordan Peterson, maybe, you know, make your Uh-oh. bed. Uh oh! Make your make your bed. Treat treat women with respect. Have goals in life, and work hard for those goals. Why don't we? You know, let's let's get our boys back on track here. We got to do this for our society. Otherwise, the cycle will keep repeating itself. And I think that lesson is true for young boys and young girls. And here's where I think it starts. You obviously have parents. Uh, Nobody can control what goes on in the classroom. Want to know what we control? What goes on in our schools? So when I talk about education and I talk about educational curriculum, and I think that the Ontario government, which in, you know, right now, decided to go back to the 1998 health curriculum. I can't embrace, I can't quite articulate how horrible of a step back that was. And the reason why they did it was because of their conservative base, was because of their traditional base, was because people don't want people talking about sex and sexuality at school. But Tony, if we're not doing that in school. No, I, no, I, Joe, Joe just, to be, just to be fair, it was not talking about, it, that was not the issue. The issue was at what age are you talking about sexuality in school? hundred percent. And I think all, well, like if we talk about grade one, so so again, for those who aren't in Ontario, just so we understand, are on because a lot in the states, I just realized how the state's educational system works, which is very different. So when the Ontario government comes up with curriculum, um, that's what every school has to teach from kindergarten all the way to grade 12. And they were talking about at what age do we start talking about it? But in, in my opinion, again, for example, I believe, and I haven't read the curriculum in a minute, but I believe grade one, they wanted just to name body parts. That was it. That was it. They wanted to say eyes, nose, mouth. They just didn't want to skip over <laughs> an area anymore. And I thought that's incredibly powerful. Here's why it's powerful. A lot of people take advantage. Bad people in our society are going to take advantage when a six-year-old thinks that that's private and you don't talk about that, that makes a very dangerous mix of what people can get away with. And the only reason we're not naming the parts in public is because it makes us uncomfortable. It doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't make, and then, and then there's this whole idea of when do we start talking about gender right away? If we're not so protective of the roles we think they ought to play, why can't we talk about fluidity when they're in grade two and three, grade two and three kids want to wear anything. You know, you have little boys be like, I have two moms. I want to wear a dress. And everybody's like, uh-oh. Well, why? So we need to bring that in at a young age. Nobody's talking about sex. Nobody's talking about STIs in grade three. That's later. Yeah. But I definitely yeah. think talking, because you're talking about how do we get boys from doing these you know, from rolling into this particular category, I'll tell you how, because we have to start having those conversations. And if that toxic masculinity, the term you don't like, or if the, 
or if those roles are being set in their family and perpetuated in their family, the only way we can possibly hope to change that is by educating not one way, not one way. I'm not saying everybody needs to be this multivariant human being. I'm saying open up the door for possibility in our educational system. Yeah, I, uh, okay. I'm, I'm doing a lot of listening on this one. Um, you know, I, I, I don't, I'm not quite sure where I stand on it. I, I, uh, it's do hard. Believe in- I get why it's hard. Yeah. 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 You know, and, uh, I want to, I want to protect trans people. I want to make sure they're safe and healthy. Uh, yeah. and that involves a lot of education. It's the, the, f- maybe part of the final frontier in terms of, uh, these, uh, these points of these rights based um, fights that have to be done uh, to get Mm -hmm. to a better society. Um, That's one of the, one of the ones where, uh, you know, we've already crossed a threshold when it comes to, uh, to lesbians and gays, but uh, trans have still some battles that they've got to fight. Uh, And uh, we, we've got to be, in my view that we've got to be there for them, but I I'm, I'm just, there's something, I, I'm trying to be honest with you. I like the, the honesty whole- because I, and I think that's important, right? Different different people coming from different perspectives. I think it's important to yeah, be yeah. honest. It's, it's just the age thing that that's, I'm still hung up on. You know, when do we start that discussion with our young people? Who initiates okay. it? Uh, do you do you, you know? And I know uh, parents can be good parents or bad parents. They can be knowledgeable parents or or ignorant parents. I get all that. I'm I'm just. Mm-hmm. A little still uncomfortable. That's all. Yeah. And I, and I think that that discomfort sometimes, and I love having these discussions, right? Especially with people who just honestly have them, not yelling at me that I'm trying to convert their kids to be tra- like, first of all, I'm not trans. A lot of people think I am because I have short hair, which I think is funny. Um, but a lot of people, if you come at me with aggression, I sometimes just get sarcastic. I don't really ever get aggressive, but I... I implore people to have honest, thoughtful conversations because that's the only way we get through with some degree. For example, if a little boy comes to school in, in grade two and and his, you know, the, the girl sitting next to him is wearing nail polish and he's like, what? you get to paint your nails? Why don't I get to paint your nails? But our whole society has now relegated that somehow to either his sexuality or him wanting to be trans, there's the problem. Because then at that point, we close off his opportunity not to be gay, not to be trans, although that should be his choice, but to just be a little kid who thinks it's cool to paint your nails. Right. That's it. You know? Let me ask you this. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm really interested in this uh, because I... haven't had kids in uh, secondary school for seven years now. My kids are older than that, so uh, right. so I, I, you know, I'm missing out on some of this. But are are you? Do you get a sense still uh, that um, like peer pressure to conform is still a big thing in the, in 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 the school culture? Of course it is. It's still a big, I think it's hysterical when, when adults say, oh, my kids are led by peer pressure. But then I look at their house and it looks like page seven out of the Ikea catalog. I'm like, oh, love, we are all conforming to peer pressure on some level, right? The kids are actually doing it, in my opinion, less 
And as they get older, you can see them doing it more because, well, they have to do it more to fit in or to do this. You know, I do, I work at a private school. I love the school I work at. It's an alternative private school. But as you can see, like I have tattoos. Well, I didn't have tattoos when I started there. Um, or the one I had, he could see. And and my my boss at work's a conservative. He's a you know a self professed conservative, and we joke with each other. And every day, I'll see he'll see a new tattoo. He'll be like, Joanna, you got a little dirt on your arm. I'm like, oh, I'll go take care of that. Don't worry, Wayne. I'll go wash that off for you. No big deal. But what he's done, he's 73. He runs, you know, he's. Uh, a part of a very particular demographic, but I've even seen him transition and change his beliefs based on the kids that sit in front of him. You know, and I've been a teacher for long enough to see some pretty big changes. And, and in the last 20 years, we used to fight, my class used to have heavy debates, heavy debates on gay marriage. Then they got bored of it because they're like, who cares? Then I started seeing heavy debates on gay adoption. Who cares? Then I saw heavy debates on trans issues. And those are kind of getting thrown out the window as we go. For example, this year, I had a student come up to me and say, Joanna, because I've never done this before, are you going to ask people their preferred pronouns so we know how to properly address them? And I'm like, see, that's why I teach, because I learn something from you all every freaking day. Now, out of all of the kids that I asked that for, and we talked about it, how many wrote they, them? One. Maybe two. Yeah. Yeah. But, but what's cool is I got to have that discussion with my grade seven and eights. And, and the grade seven and eights listen and they understand that there could be this diversity. And they try to, even though they might joke, especially some of the younger guys, they, they're uncomfortable, right? They're uncomfortable. So they joke. They're uncomfortable. And so sometimes they make fun or they tease a little bit. But then it's my job to say, okay, okay, I get why you're uncomfortable there. I get why you're making that joke. But can we talk about the reason you're making the joke? You know? And so just yeah. to talk it yeah. through like that, I think is so. Yeah, you know, I, I I thought I thought uh, gay jokes were really funny until two of my best friends uh, came out as gay <laughs> when I was in high school. <laughs> so and Listen, uh, I still maybe think I, maybe I better rethink this. Yeah, you know exactly. But when yeah. you were in high school and I was in high school, my gosh, I remember I've looked back because I grew up in the eighties and I look back at the eighties and nineties movies and I think about the language that was used, particularly yeah. about gay men. Gay, nobody talked about gay women, I don't think, for a very long time. But that language, like the F word and not the swear word, but that F word was in every single oh, movie as an attack. 100%. It was yeah. 100% common. So we have to be able to have those conversations. Now, everybody knows we can't say that word. And 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 that's the part of censorship. And I want to come back to censorship um, a little bit because I think it's incredibly important. Because I think a lot of people know they can't say the word, but they really don't like it. Any word for that matter. They don't like it and they still think it's funny and they just don't say it. But nobody's having the conversation that needs to be had. Do you understand what I mean by that? Um, not really. Just go, go through that again. Oh. I don't want to censor, and we're, we're talking about obviously uh, uh, slang or derogatory words for gay men. I don't want to. Okay. I don't want to silence people that still have homophobic thoughts because I can't fix that thought if I can't hear you say it. I yeah, can't I, have you know, this anymore. I want to be able I, to I, have. I can't. 
the discussion. I can't remember the last time I heard that phrase used in in front of me. Uh, mm-hmm. But if it were ever used in front of me, I'd say, "Dude, not cool." Like, right. you know, just don't. But don't I would please like don't to use have that, that discussion. Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing about censorship, right? Censorship, because we talked about cancel culture. Censorship. It's funny because I really don't want to hear a, a, a bigot or a white supremacist or a whoever getting up there and, and spewing garbage. But at the end of the day, that individual thinks that. So you know what? Get on stage and say it so we can deal with you. I used to think this way about Jerry Springer. Remember that show? And yeah, all yeah, those yeah. morons would in and they'd wear their KKK hats and then they'd take them off and then they'd fight. And I'm like, you know... <laughs> a lot of people would think, oh, well, you're just highlighting it. No, 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 no. Nobody walks away from Jerry Springer going, wow, those guys are brilliant. No, no, no. Because we let no, there, the there has to be a, a place. Yeah, I, I agree with you. We, we have to hash this out as a society. And if you if you bury it, it doesn't disappear. It just goes underground. So And, and it and, gets uh, scarier and more violent. And, and it gets scarier and gets reinforced to be scarier and more marginal, you know, like you, you get into the QAnon universe and all this other stuff that is is just wacko, but is, is, is fed by, you know, denunciation by people who want to marginalize it and cut it off Twitter or whatever. Right. So uh, that, that doesn't seem to be working too well is all I can say on that. I got to tell you one, one political story. (laughs) He said, he said bigot. So I, I got, I've got this one story. It was before I was I was, it was before I was in the Ontario caucus, but it was told to me by Ernie Eves and uh, they were in the, in the uh, late seventies, early eighties, they were having a big battle on Bill Davis was premier about whether to extend French language services. Right. Uh, and um, big battle in the, in the Tory caucus, you know, a lot of the rural MPPs didn't want to see extended right. French language services. So they're having this big battle in caucus and uh, this guy named Lorne Henderson, who represented Sarnia Lampton stands up and Lorne was about 350 pounds. Uh, He was a farmer. His, his, his each, each finger was like a cucumber. Uh, His nose was bulbous, like just, you know, really big guy. But, you know, he, he kind of had the common sense of the, of the rural farmer. So he stands up and he says, well, I I don't like where this is going, Premier. I don't think we should be going down this route, Premier. You know, I have bigamists in my riding. And what he meant was bigots, but he (laughs) he misspoke and he said bigamists. And everybody starts giggling. He says, says, oh, yeah, yeah, you laugh at me, but you all have bigamists in your riding, too. <laughs> so that was that's my that whenever somebody says bigots now I always think of bigamists so there bigamists? you go. Oh my gosh. I think and I I think all of that is just and then I'd like to roll I don't I I realize we've already been on an hour but I'm having such a good time but I would understand if you need to go. Otherwise we can let it go no, a little I'm, bit I'm longer. Good for a little while, little while longer, Joe. Let's keep it going. All right, you you cut me off then Tony. You say, "Okay, Joanne, enough's enough." Uh I'm a teacher. I can go for a solid 8 hours. Um so I think I think that that's a really good point, too, because we've kind of talked about a lot of these big issues. And you said something earlier that I really would like to speak to is the idea that at a pol- as a politician and and speaking about the state of our politics right now, 
this notion about getting reelected and only having a certain amount of juice, you call it rocket fuel? What'd you call it? Rocket, rocket, rocket sauce. <laughs> rocket sauce. Um, you only have so much. So what are you going to spend it on? I think is incredibly important. Um, and you also spoke to the, the notion of, you know, the internal conservative party, maybe trying to teach their members how to be more, a little bit more emotionally driven. And all I can think in my head is, you know, like all of those movies like Wag the Dog or any political satirical movie where we teach the candidate what to wear, how to tilt their head, how to roll up their sleeve at the right time, how to do this instead of this. I swear to God, if I became a politician, I just pointed at everybody because I'm like, this means the same thing, <laughs> means the same thing. We've just switched it out and we think as though we're being respectful, we're not. Yeah. And all of this play, all of this acting that goes on, and that goes on in every single party, every single party, no holds barred, the acting to get your rocket, you know, to, to get your things passed, hopefully that you really like, and, and the, you know, the secondary, maybe primary to get reelected. That's your, that's your goal, right? That's our goal. And I, I can't help thinking as a politics teacher, this is the flaw in democracy. The flaw in democracy is the performative aspect where I'm so busy worrying about getting reelected or worrying about what I can get, even though this is the right thing to do, what can I get through the legislature is is the real reason people are very disenfranchised with, with the entire, and, and again, every party across the board. My favorite quote from Lincoln was, is, I'd like to have God on my side, but I must have Kentucky. It's my favorite quote. And it depresses me every time I say it. But I think that's the flaw. Yeah, that's our well, flaw. That's, uh, it's not a flaw. It's human nature. Okay. Like that's the first thing I'd say, like uh, politics. Look, I, I'm, I'm going to be unap- unapologetic about certain aspects of politics. First of all, it's partisan. Oh, it would be so much better if people would agree more. No, no. The whole purpose of politics is to debate issues, to be passionate about issues, to disagree passionately. You should be respectful, but disagree passionately with somebody. And, and then, <laughs> yeah, you know, disagree and then it'll be resolved. Sorry, say that again. Right? Disagree that again. passionately, intelligently, because if I have to watch yeah. the house argue about things and people slam on desk one more time and just inadvertently go through the speaker to call this person a name, I can't anymore. Yeah, no, but yeah, and, and you're right. That that performative stuff wears thin after a while. There's no question about it. But but uh, you know, it, it it should be the place where you di- you disagree fundamentally on on some on some really important issues. If you can't do it there, you can't do it anywhere. So I I don't have I don't have a lot of time for people who want politicians to agree more. Um, but uh, you know, look, uh, you know, this is this isn't a debating society. You can only affect change if you are elected as a right. government. Being elected as an opposition member doesn't count. Okay, you got nothing. I'm just, yes. uh, you got nothing, and it's the most frustrating job minority. in the world. Right. Believe me, yeah, I had I it. I, I was in politics for 25 years. I was only four years in opposition. Those were the four worst years, bar right. none. Yeah, mm-hmm. you, you can be a the worst backbencher. 
If you're in government, it's better to be the worst backbencher in government than to be a frontbencher in opposition. No question let about me just, it. Let me just give a little point here, because again, we have a lot of people listening, who, even in Canada, who don't quite get the system. In Canada, our prime minister and our legislature is elected together. They're elected together. It's called a fusion of powers, and it allows a majority government pretty much to pass whatever it is they want to pass, as long as it doesn't tip the constitutional issues, yeah. right? As long as so, you keep in confines of the constitution, it gives them a lot of power and a lot of privilege to do whatever the heck they want. Which so is different so I state. would argue that the prime minister of Canada has the most power in the elected world. Absolutely. Most power. If they have a majority, if they have a majority. If they have a majority. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He, he appoints the cabinet. He appoints every member of the upper chamber, mm-hmm. every senator that uh, whose term is th- th- there's a vacancy. They yeah. appoint every single senator. They appoint every single Supreme Court justice. You talk about fusion, so executive, legislative, judiciary, all coming from one, except for one one uh, exception, one man. That short six months, yeah. <laughs> yeah that short six months, uh, Kim Campbell. So, so uh, yeah, that's a lot of power. That's a lot, a of, lot power. of power. And mm-hmm. I'll tell you, you know, uh, look, uh, being being in the inner cabinet as I was with Stephen Harper, people will scoff at this, I'm sure, but he gave us a lot of room to debate a lot of issues. Uh, we debated issues in caucus. We debated issues in cabinet. Uh, Mm -hmm. It wasn't just Stephen Harper making decisions, but if he wanted to make a decision, he could. Mm -hmm. He's the prime minister. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of deferential authority given to the Canadian prime minister. Yeah, more so than in the U.S. by far, because you have division of powers. More so in the U.K., where um, uh, where things have evolved in the U.K., where uh, different cabinet members have a lot of authority apart from the prime minister. And within the prime minister's caucus, uh, she or he faces continual push and pull and opposition. There's something called the 1922 committee in the UK uh, Conservative Party, where they 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 are backbenchers who who force the prime minister to come to their meetings and explain things and justify things. We don't have anything like that in Canada. I'm telling you right now. Now, a caucus can work that way. But, you know, a lot, quite frankly, there's a lot of people in caucus who spend their time sucking up to the to the leader or prime minister because that's the best way to get a, a better, a better plum, a better appointment, a better cabinet position, a better, you know, opposition position. So, um, you know, and I saw that frequently. I, I didn't care because I'd already had a political career and I had the power to walk away. But uh, mm-hmm. many people. Oh, Prime Minister, that's that's a great point. I, you know, you are one hundred percent right on that. Well, wait, can we debate it for a minute or two? Uh, that that'd be nice, you know. So so look, that's human. But I'm telling you, that's human nature. You know, politics is. is human nature in 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 a specific field. So, you know, if you don't like how politics is being played out, look in the mirror, folks. I'm sorry, but that's that's the reality. Absolutely. People ask me, I've, I've been approached by a couple of people to talk about running. And I said, I don't think I'm going to do well. I, I, I don't think I'm going to do well. And here's why. I'm not very good at tempering. I'm not very great at compromise. I love discussion. I love discussion. 
But for example, if I was running in a, under any party, uh, one of my main tenants would have to be, listen, do you want more social services or less? And then we can talk about what your tax base is. But you're going to have to first decide over here because anybody that steps to you and says, I'm going to give you more for less, you're being sold land that you shouldn't be buying. It's just not going to happen. I don't believe it can happen. And I think that's also when people blame politicians, 100% you have to look at the population and what you're voting for. I mean, we voted for a gentleman in Ontario who promised a buck a beer. That was an actual thing he said. Now, I might not have voted for him, but the people that voted for him who are now complaining, I like to just roll that clip. Guys, he said who he was. You just didn't believe it. And you like the fact you thought your taxes were going to go down, which seems to be this main sort of, you know, staple of what people are because they're making decisions based on how much money's in their pocket because it's hard. Well, I get they, it. you know, they have humans have a right to do that. <laughs> You know, Absolutely. that's kind of, you know, it's, is it in my pocket to, to buy a new bicycle for my seven-year-old or is it going to some wasteful government program? That's a, that's a continuing theme in, Waste. in political right. life, right? So you have to go in the hospital for 10 minutes and then you were like, oh, we should have put more money here. Or no, oh, then, like- then they would say, you know, the, the doctors are being paid too much. <laughs> so then there'd be that. But, uh, you know, uh, look, the, 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 the fact of the matter is, um, uh, you know, uh, politics is is very reflective. Sometimes there's a time lag. I grant you that, but it it, it is reflective of society. Uh, and uh, and when when it isn't, uh, the bums are thrown out, and the the mm-hmm. the, the new the new government is party elected, and then people's yeah. confidence in the government increases, and the popularity mm-hmm. of the prime minister increases. We saw this in 2016, 2015 with uh, Justin Trudeau, and then of course you know, he has to make decisions and some decisions are good and some decisions are bad. And uh, now he has a negative popularity and the liberal brand is, is being eroded. That's just, you know, that's the cycle. I'm not, I'm not blaming yeah. Trudeau. I'm just saying like, you've been yeah. empowered dude since 2015. You, they're not going to love you anymore. They're, they, they, they want this or they want that, or why didn't you do this on indigenous or why didn't yeah. you do this, uh, you know, uh, on, on this file. So, so that's, that's the cycle. And, that's that's the good thing about representative democracy is you get you know you get a chance to kick the bums out if you if you want to, um, but uh, let me let me go back to your point, um, which is why you, you wouldn't feel comfortable in that kind of politics, and this is the point that has to be emphasized if you're teaching a politics class. Politics is a team sport. It's mm-hmm. a team sport. Uh, you have the debates internally and a caucus I've seen rip roaring debates, people yelling, people screaming, people, you know, shaking their fist at their fellow colleague, you know, and don't forget caucus for your listeners are of the same party. It's when you caucus, just your, just your party is represented in your caucus. And -hmm. that's where you debate where you're standing on issues and you have the debate, you conclude the debate you come to a decision as a collective, and that is the decision. And if you as a caucus member feel that you cannot abide by that decision, you better quit now. You better quit that caucus and stand as an independent, whatever. Right. But you, you cannot walk out of that caucus room and say, I, just, I disagree with all of my colleagues. This is where I stand on this issue. You're, you're done. Because, yeah. because no one, your, your constituents may thank you for like a half a minute. 
But yeah. what you're doing you're is you are you are making it tougher for every single other caucus member who have to answer to their constituents about a po- an unpopular decision. Well, why are you taking that position? So and so isn't taking that position, you know. And and so the the idea of solidarity is, is how I would put it is yeah. so that you you stand or fall together. You make the decision. Everybody gets their say. Everybody gets their five their five minutes or their two minutes at the microphone. But at the end of the day, you make a decision collectively and you stand by that decision. If you cannot do that, you do not deserve to govern because government means making tough decisions. And if you yep. cannot have that solidarity of the team, you are not able to make the tough decisions that are necessary. And, you know, the, the greatest um, master of his caucus in in parliamentary history probably was Brian Mulroney who Ugh. who you know was, was down at 13% in the polls but every caucus member stood behind him because of the way he worked his caucus that he respected his caucus if if your if your spouse was in the hospital he would visit your spouse in the hospital he did crazy stuff that you know right. was so time consuming but was important for caucus solidarity behind him and uh, that's a is it a lost art it's not a lost art but it you know, it's, it's a, it's an art that is losing favor and, uh, you know, it, it has consequences. You know, Justin Trudeau does not have the same, uh, caucus solidarity that he had six years ago. Cause he doesn't do some of the little things that are important anyway, uh, that be that as it may, that's why. And so when, when, if somebody come, somebody in your class says, I'd, I'd like to run in politics. Uh, mm-hmm. just, just remember it's a team sport. Okay. Like it, it really is. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, you get to have influence. Yes. You get to represent your community. Yes. You get to push certain policies. All of that is true. And it's exhilarating when those policies are, are adopted and becomes the policy of your province or country. All of that is absolutely true. And it's the, the greatest job on earth. As far as I'm concerned, I, I loved every minute of it or almost every minute of it. Uh, and, uh, and, but, but, you have to understand the rules of the game and uh, mm-hmm. it's not all about you and wh- where you stand. It's all about your seatmates. It's all about mm-hmm. your, your common goals. Uh, you've got to, you got to put some water into the wine, man, or it's not going to work. And I think it's important because yeah, it is about common goals, right? But I'm wondering, I'm wondering with this, voting apathy with the, the the disengagement of a lot of people. Like you just described a system that I buy, that I want to watch. But because all of those caucuses are behind closed doors and we never want to admit that we've disagreed and come to a conclusion, I think that might be a failure. I think that might be what's lacking. I would love to see. I would love to see. Any yeah, because the media, the media will crucify you. If there, if there is a disagreement in your own caucus do you think the media is going to record wow there was a a refreshing debate in the government caucus about this issue and people disagreed good for them no 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 they're not they're never going to write that they're going to they're going to write or post there was division yeah people disagreed with the prime minister yeah yeah so you can't do it what if they started publicizing? What if they took, what if they said, you know what? We're really tired of sound bites because that's how the media works. Because let's be honest, we want to see 140 characters in a Twitter or we want to see a 30 second TikTok. So what if the party finally said, I'm going to take control over this? Did we have a great debate? Yes. Did person A, B, and C disagree? Yes. But, but 
as a party, we needed to come to some sort of conclusion in the sense of how do we work all of these opinions and how do we still come up what's best for Ontario, what's best for Canada, and how do we do that? I am telling you, people would buy into that. Yeah, They'd want the problem- to, And then they would see an authenticity that they think yeah, they're missing. And authenticity is, is the holy grail of politics these days. I, I, I totally get it that. really the, is. The, the, the problem is that the whole idea of caucus secrecy is so you can speak your mind, right? And if it, that if that is broken, like we had a guy when I was first elected uh, as part of the Har- Harper government, we had a guy Garth Turner, uh, who represented Milton, who <laughs> would who would uh, attend the caucus meetings, walk out of the caucus meetings, and post what was going on at the caucus meeting on his blog. So we we said to him like, dude, you can't yeah. you can't do that like. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking from the heart. My constituents may not like the way I'm speaking about an issue. Maybe I was speaking uh, pro LGBT, but my constituents weren't quite there yet. I don't want them to know necessarily what I'm pushing because, uh, you know, uh, it's going to affect me electorally, dude. So stop, stop posting on the blog what we're talking about, what we're talking freely to to one another as colleagues, he continued to do it. We had to kick him out of caucus. We, yeah, he, well, for sure. he, he well, gone. Again, that's just one person pulling out excerpts, pulling out sound bites, pulling out whatever, putting on his blog. What I'm talking about is, and you made a very, very good, very honest point. Look, my people aren't ready for these viewpoints yet, but I'm wondering. I'm just imagining, idealizing. I don't know what a world looks like when, if we have those honest conversations consistently and even if our our constituents aren't necessarily there yet how many more people will buy into the system will buy into an idea will buy into an honesty because i think all people say you know all politicians and they'll fill in the blank and i'm like you know what people don't go into politics to get rich People no. don't go into politics. They go in because they think they can make a difference. And they, I think they go in. They go in for the adulation. I'm just kidding. The image that you see. <laughs> Everybody likes the T-shirt. If you yeah. see somebody representing, you know, and they're so polished, and they're so this, and they're so that, that's where you lose us. You know, you you started yeah. this whole conversation talking about Trudeau. Um, the older one, not the younger one. Um, and, and obviously you would have been coming off the heels or right around the time of the war measures act and the FLQ and all of that. And this guy gets in national, (laughs) gets a media, you know, correspondent in his face with a microphone in his face and the famous, how dare you, do you really think, do you think this, do you think you can do that? And he, with a smirk on his face says, just watch me now. You could love him or hate him because of that. Yeah, and, and yeah. then that was. But I kind of, I kind of love him now for that. <laughs> I miss that honesty. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I yeah, miss yeah. that honesty. I miss yeah. that. I truly miss that. And you will see minutes of it. But I, I, I think if we can, I think politicians think they're going to lose a lot more than gain if we put more things front and center. Well, I would love. How do you, how do you measure like? Okay, I, I hear what you're saying, and I, I agree. Authenticity is valued now. Uh, how do you how do you deal with the the Trump factor then? Because I don't think he's authentic. You don't. I think don't he's think. He's, 
Oh, I think that guy, I would love to, like, I think that guy knew exactly, or his people knew exactly how he was playing it. Yeah. I've even thought that misspelling words in his tweets was purposeful. Yeah. I've even thought that his base, I think he did, I am obviously not a Trump fan. I think he did a really good job, unfortunately, of tapping into fear, tapping into dissension, deciding how he could manipulate that, how he could get those people to vote for him. And, and a guy with a, with a, the apprentice became president. That wasn't because I, I, I don't think that was authentic at all. That was the best example of the manipulation of all media sources. Okay. Okay. He did Fair a great enough. job. Even right down to when he debated Clinton and stood right behind her. I'm like, yeah. who taught that guy that move? That's a good move. That that's a good TV move, you know. Yeah. And then I thought yeah. of Reagan yeah. and Nixon. And I, I mean, sorry, I, I thought of uh, Nixon and JFK being on TV yeah. for the first time, and and who got to manipulate that source. So yeah, and I, you know, everybody blames Trump, and I'm like, guys, seventy million of you voted for him. You can't blame. How do you? How do you teach? Uh, your students uh, in this age of media manipulation? How do you teach them to to be critically assessing media? It's so hard. So I start right in my, I, it's so funny you say that. So I, I teach, my school goes from seven to 12. And I have a seven and eight uh, global issues course that I just created um, because they take more courses at my school than they would at a regular elementary. So this is an extra course. And we just did a unit on um, social media and the media in general and real and fake news and things like that. And and the only way I can start them doing it is by going, finding stories. And this, we just did this assignment. I said, go find stories you think are fascinating. Go find stories that drew your attention or if you were on Twitter or whatever, and then go find out who wrote them. And then where is it posted? Who posted it? Who fact checked it? And then I want you to go find at least three other sources that talk about the same thing and talk about it in a similar way. Can you do that? For example, I had a kid who said, Joanna, the CIA just admitted to the Illumina that the Illuminati existed. I said, honey, no, they didn't. And he goes, yes, it says right here, CIA.gov. I said, what else does that URL say? Because it was like this long, right? Afterwards. I'm like, there you go. But that's as easy as it is. Right. Um, And I also think we got to use some common sense. Yeah. Yeah. I sometimes just think we have to use common sense and we also have to be aware of what drives us as a society and where the ridiculousness is i.e. who gets married, who gets divorced, who cheated on who, what this, this celebrity's doing, how much this celebrity's paying. Look, if you're going to be interested in all that, take ownership because that doesn't matter. Um, but for the other things, like COVID we, is a great example. Oh, our first mention of COVID on this uh, program. The first mention. Well, who wants to keep talking? Not bad. I, I would love I'd love to never talk about it again, but the idea that everybody's a virologist, I I can't, right? Everybody's like, I did my research and I saw a funny TikTok where it said, listen, unless you ran clinical trials that have been peer approved, you did no such thing. And I like that. I like that. Um, The fact that, you know, just because we have this incredibly powerful thing at our, at our source, 
um, or, or, you know, that, that it, it doesn't come easy, you know, and nor a lot of people are like, well, it was better when we were kids, when we had to go to the library and spend 17 hours there. I'm like, was it because those books, those books were all decided who wrote them, why they got to write them, who funded them, what was considered legitimate information. And I grew up in an era where guess what? Nobody in my high school or even at university spoke about residential schools at all. And I took politics and history. So, so there's fake news, or at least what I get more worried about than fake news, which is ironic is the omission. I worried about what they don't talk about. Sure. I don't even know. Right. Yeah. But that's why we need educated uh, young people who uh, are critically thinking, right? Mm -hmm. That seems to be a common goal here, Joe. Yeah. 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 Well, we're almost at an hour and a half. I love it. It was my longest podcast ever. I appreciate you for coming. It is. No, I usually, I try to be around. Somebody told me once, like it's a 45, you should be 45 minutes. That's the drive to work. Well, Joe Rogan's three and a half hours, the one I'm listening to right now. So that's it. We're (laughs) going to have a whole other podcast. We're going to fight about Joe Rogan, Jordan Peterson, Okay. And I'm going to add on there just because Ben Shapiro, because I know you're probably like, yeah, Ben on that list somewhere. No, I only I like listen. It. I've only heard Ben Shapiro once when he was a guest on Joe Rogan. And um, I didn't, I, th- I found him quite annoying actually, but anyway, that's just me. He, he is incredibly annoying. Um, but thank you so incredibly much. I really appreciate you coming on. I would love to have you back. I think we have oh, a list of you. things we could discuss. Um, can I ask you a quick question? Favorite, favorite Canadian prime minister ever. Uh, uh, I, I know I'm supposed say, to say I know I'm Stephen supposed Harper. to say Stephen Harper. You can't, uh, no, 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 you can't. Um, I, I would say overall, uh, either Harper or Mulroney. One, they, Mulroney? They did, yeah, because they well, Mulroney achieved some big things, uh, and he was eventually vilified for it. Um, but Harper was also a genius at getting a bunch of incremental things done uh, that cumulatively were important. So yeah, I, they, they, they had, they were, it, it was different times, the eighties versus, uh, versus mm. 2006 to, to 15 Absolutely. different, different times. So favorite liberal, favorite liberal, I'll give you provincial or federal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you just shifted in your seat. You're like, <sighs> yeah, I know it's, 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 I, no one has ever asked me that before. Um, well, definitely, uh, I would go with, uh, I would, uh, well, Edward Blake. I always had a, a soft spot for Edward Blake. Blake. Wow. Why? I know he was never, he was never prime minister. Um, yeah. but he, he, he really pushed for free trade at a time when, um, uh, McDonald was pushing his, uh, you know, sort of Canada first policies, um, wow. which I thought was so you know, eventually, eventually where we ended up a hundred years later. Um, right, right, so, right. I actually did a, when I was a high school student. I did a, a whole essay on Edward Blake. So I guess I'll, I'll, I'm going to stick with Edward Blake. You're going to stick with Edward. I think that's fairly safe. I think that's a safe, uh, and he's really old. Like it's a really long time ago. Yeah. Well, thank you. I could, so I could have much. said Sir Charles Tupper, but nobody knew, would know who that was. Tupper. So. Uh, I know Nova Scotia, right? Yeah. 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 History. Good, teacher. A good Nova Scotia. I got that stuff jammed in my head, no matter if I want it to be there or not. Uh, I really appreciate. Thank you for for sticking around. I can't wait to have you back on. And to all our listeners, 
you for hanging out. We will see you next Tuesday. Same bat time, same bat channel. Have a good day, guys. Dismissed.